Namaste. My name is Samir Kalra, and I'm the Managing Director for the Hindu American Foundation. Welcome to the That's So Hindu podcast. We're joined today by Carly Gamil. Carly is the Founding Director of the Stand With Us Center for Combating Antisemitism and simultaneously serves as Counsel for Litigation Strategy in the Stand With Us Sayedoff Legal Department. A former constitutional litigator, Carly is active in fighting antisemitism on campuses, in local communities, in court, and at the United Nations. Her passion for this work, particularly on campuses, derives in part from her background in the education field, as well as from a deep personal conviction that the world, including people of all races and religions, cannot afford to stand by silently while the Jewish people are once again targeted, marginalized, demonized, and harmed. As an educator, Carly uses an engaging and interactive approach to offer practical tools for addressing anti-Semitism, both in response to specific incidents and as proactive measures that look toward preventing further occurrences of anti-Semitism. Stand With Us is an international nonpartisan education organization that supports Israel and fights anti-Semitism and a close partner of the Hindu American Foundation. Against the horrific Hamas terror attack on Israeli civilians on October 7th, in the ongoing war to eradicate Hamas in Gaza, the Jewish community has seen a massive surge in anti-Semitism, especially in college campuses. Carly has been on the front lines of fighting this. We're honored to have Carly on the podcast with us today to talk about what she's been seeing and dealing with and why all Americans, including Hindu Americans, should be very concerned about some of these recent trends. Welcome, Carly. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much, Samir. This is such a pleasure to be, be here. Right. So, Carly, I want to start a little bit broadly and then we can get into some specifics. Um, of course, recently we all saw the congressional hearing on anti-Semitism on college campuses. Uh, what was your reaction? What do you think that said about the general climate at universities and the role of administrators? Yeah, I have to say I, I share, I think, the general opinion of the broader Jewish community um, and, and it really anyone who is concerned about what's happening on college campuses and uh, saying that I, I think it was it was truly an abysmal performance. Um, and and I use that word specifically uh, performance because it seemed to me uh, partially from my legal background and, and partially just from watching uh, that that it really was very well rehearsed. Uh, that, that they were well prepared, uh, not not to give accurate answers, but to give kind of the party line. Um, you, you know, I I read some. I'll say this: I read some articles. I was traveling, and so I didn't have the opportunity to watch it live, and I was kind of trying to follow. Uh, and then, of course, immediately there are media outlets that are reporting on it, um, and and I was at least. I don't know if I'd say hopeful, but but moderately so that maybe some of the questions just you know couldn't be answered as as we would hope that they would be answered. You know, maybe they weren't asked uh, in a way to elicit you know the quote correct answer. But then when I went back and I watched and and saw that you know, university presidents uh, wanted to try to contextualize calling for the genocide of Jewish people, um, you know. There's really no excuse for that. Um, like I said, as a, as a litigator and, and as someone who spent my my career litigating primarily First Amendment issues, uh, I absolutely understand the line between speech and conduct, and I understand you know that that's important. Uh, but but if you can't say that students on your campus marching and chanting 
for the death of another identifiable group that exists on your campus is a violation of your policies, uh, then, then we have a problem either with the policies or with the administrator and maybe both. Uh, so that was my that was my reaction. No, absolutely. And you touched on a couple of things there that I think are really important. Uh, number one, performance. Um, and it definitely felt like, you know, the wording, first of all, they matched across the board, across separate universities, three university presidents, and then trying to toe this odd line along the First Amendment. But I think maybe for our audience, if you can elaborate a little bit about you know, that line that people get confused about what the First Amendment actually says versus what are the obligations, the legal obligations of university campuses to create a certain safe and secure environment for their students and personnel, and how maybe people don't understand that universities have an obligation that goes beyond what the First Amendment allows. So maybe if you can elaborate a little bit there uh, for our audience, that would be great. Sure, sure. And, and I don't at all mean to insinuate or imply that, this, that these are easy uh, issues generally. Uh, you know, I, I, I do think that, that as the Congresswoman said, this was an easy one, though, right, calling for genocide. Um, but in, in terms of, of those lines, uh, you know, generally, we protect to the hilt private speech in this country, right? And that's to be uh, distinguished from and, and differentiated from, say, many European countries, where a lot of speech that is considered hate speech and offensive is actually criminalized. Um, you know, here, the answer to speech with which we disagree generally, it's not less speech. It's not to silence speech. It's more speech. It's, you know, let's talk about this and, and let me give you my perspective. Um, and that actually applies to hate speech as well. Uh, you know, speech that we find horribly offensive in many cases uh, doesn't necessarily mean that it's not protected by the First Amendment. Um, you know, the fact that speech is offensive is actually uh, in our jurisprudence, it's more reason to give it protection because we don't want to go in that direction of telling people what they can say to the extent you know, that we can we can prevent doing that. Um, but then you get to special circumstances and contexts and school environments are one of those. Uh, and high schools and, and elementary schools really have some some greater um, leeway in terms of administrative uh, ability and discretion to step in when it comes to uh, certain speech. But even on college campuses where, yes, free speech is sacrosanct and, and we're supposed to be discovering truth from a multitude of, of ideas and viewpoints, um, that doesn't mean that students on campus have the right to say whatever they want, whenever they want, wherever they want, however they want. You know, there, there are, first of all, that there are certain categories of speech that simply are not protected by the First Amendment. Uh, truth threats is one of those categories. You, know, you have obscenity and you have defamation, and then you have true threats. And we actually have some fairly recent case law from the Supreme Court of the United States that makes it clear that whether something is a true threat is really dependent upon how the, the recipient understands that and takes it. It's not about the intent of the person. Um, and so even if, and, and I'm, that, that's an important qualifier, but even if some of the students, for example, marching on a campus and chanting for, you know, intifada, which, which is a call for, uh, you know, the, the annihilation of the Jewish state and the Jewish people, or, you know, using other phraseology that really is genocidal uh, at its core, even if some of the people saying it don't mean that they, you know, maybe they think that they are 
promoting some social justice cause, equality for the Palestinian people. Uh, you know, you have to look at the Jewish and Israeli students and, and other members of that community and say, how do they understand that when, you know, when students are marching through their campus and, you know, they understand that as you want me dead, um, you want my people gone from the face of the earth, right? And so, so certainly, you know, you, you could look at this type of language as potentially a true threat, um, you know, that, that could be uh, prescribed, uh, prohibited. But even if you don't go that far, right, so much of what we're seeing uh, is is going so far beyond the bounds of what the First Amendment protects in terms of, like I said, the, the time, the place, the manner. All of those things can be lawfully restricted uh, if done appropriately. And so, for instance, you know, allowing students to march through a campus and, uh, you know, beat on doors and windows and shut down libraries, uh, you know, it's, it's effectively a takeover by a riotous mob. Um, and, and in the midst of that, chanting genocidal cries. Uh, again, none of that is protected by the free speech clause of the First Amendment. But I guess one, one thing maybe I should add to that um, is, is then moving on to the university's obligation. Uh, again, you've got all of that when it comes to the First Amendment, but then you also have federal non-discrimination laws. For example, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, which simply says that recipients of federal funding are not permitted to discriminate on the basis of race, color, and national origin. And without getting into the weeds of why and how it is so, um, certain groups like Jews, Sikhs, Muslims, others, you know, who, who are generally thought of as a religious group, but also have a shared ancestry component to their identity, receive protection under Title VI, under the national origin provision, right? And so because of Title VI and because of the fact that virtually all of the colleges and universities in the United States, whether public or private, receive federal funding in, in some form, they then are obligated, once they are on notice of a hostile climate for a protected group, and so here, you know, you've got clearly anti-Semitic hostility uh, in, in, in terms of the environment. Once they're on notice of that, they have an absolute obligation under that federal law to take the steps that are reasonably necessary and calculated to remedy that environment. Uh, and, and that, unfortunately, is where we're seeing most of the failures on college campus right now is from administrators who are well aware of what's happening on their campuses, uh, defending it under the free speech clause, rather than recognizing that, wait a minute, what's happening here is not simply people trying to express their view, but it is crossing the line. It is becoming harassment, and in some cases, true threats. And, and again, trying to kind of hide behind this idea of, oh, well, we have to protect speech at all costs. And like I said, there's interplay between the First Amendment and Title VI that in, in the current circumstances uh, leads to the conclusion that, no, you absolutely do not have to protect that speech. And in fact, you have an obligation that you are failing in when it comes to the Jewish and Israeli students on your campus. And I want to come back to some of those specific incidents and Title VI in a little bit. But, you know, do you find that there's also hypocrisy, perhaps, in terms of people that are now suddenly free speech advocates. Um, previously, when other groups were involved or when there was discussions of, you know, what should be protected or not protected, are now all of a sudden hiding behind free speech. Of course. Um, of course, we, we've seen this for years on college campuses, this idea. Uh, what has really been is free speech for me, but not for thee. 
right? And now all of a sudden, it's free speech for everybody, uh, you know, if as long as the Jews are the targets. Um, I mean, that's really kind of what it looks like. And then, you know, also in terms of hypocrisy, like th- there's uh, there's been a lot of discussion about, okay, well, what if, for example, instead of marching through campus and chanting for the genocide of Jews or Israelis or both, um, what if the chants were for uh, the lynching of black people, you know, or another protected minority? Do we think that these administrators would sit back comfortably saying, well, whether or not that violates our policies, uh, it's a matter of context, uh, you know, even to the extent that some speech along those lines, you know, when it comes to other groups might be protected at the very least, I would expect. I think most of us would expect that administrators would be far more vocal in condemning that type of speech. I think they would be absolutely implementing time, place and manner restrictions, right, to say, even if we feel like some of this we have to allow in terms of speech, uh, we're certainly not going to basically give you free reign on our campus, uh, you know, to to promote these ideas. There would be far more done, I believe, you know, if if there were other minorities involved. And, and we've seen that. Uh, we've seen that condemnation when it comes to other groups. Uh, and and we, we simply don't see it here. Yeah. And that's unfortunate. And we've actually even he- heard stories from people from within our own community that, you know, are just trying to go be a college student, um, go to classes. And even those people are being harassed um, and being bullied and um, are facing, you know, uh, a hostile climate. Um, from, you know, those that are, you know, trying to bully them into taking positions um, in favor of Hamas or against Israel and the Jewish community. Have you um, seen that as well? Well, yeah, it's, it's actually something that we see pretty regularly. Um, and, and, and even before October 7th, but, but it's, I think it's just ramped up in terms of the intensity. Uh, but, you know, we talk a lot about kind of, if you, if you look at a college campus, say, and you, and you look at the spectrum of students, right? Uh, on on one end, you generally have say five to ten percent of students who are pro-Israel, um, you know, who support the Jewish community. On the other end, you'll have a five to ten percent who it, it doesn't matter what facts you provide, um, you know, they're going to be the pro-Hamas, the anti-Israel, uh, you know, groups, anti-Jewish, you know, all, all that goes with that. So you're really talking about an eighty to ninety percent though of that student population. Who don't necessarily have strong feelings, and and they're kind of the target audience for for both groups, right? To to persuade them, uh, to educate them in in some cases, uh, and and say, you know, look, here's the situation from our perspective, and so it's, it's like this battle for the hearts and minds of this eighty to ninety percent, and and that's largely people outside of you know the communities that are being most directly impacted. Like you said, your students would would be uh, you know within that group, and the the tactics that are used, yes, um, are really can be, they're nothing short of bullying and harassment. Again, not just because you may be Jewish or Israeli, but because you might support the Jewish community. You might support Israel's right to exist. And, and for years that, you know, that has been, uh, those individuals have been treated as persona non grata, right? You're not welcome in these spaces on campus. And I think we're seeing that with with just a greater intensity in the wake of October 7th. And speaking of that intensity, uh, can you talk a little bit about the scale and the scope of what you have been maybe intaking at uh, Stand With Us? Um, You know, 
I know obviously there's, you know, a long history of anti-Semitism on college campuses long before October 7th. And you and I have done a joint, some joint trainings before on that, um, around Hindu phobia and anti-Semitism, but I can only imagine that, I mean, I don't even know what the numbers are right now, but I, I can only imagine that you probably are receiving, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of, um, you know, reports of incidents happening. Maybe if you can just talk about, you know, what that looks like. Um, and then we'll talk a little bit about some of the specific examples of um, what some of those incidents entail. Yeah. So I'll, I guess I'll, I'll start really broadly. Um, you know, the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, tracks uh, incidents of anti-Semitism. And so th- their numbers, you know, not this is not just on college campuses, in the United States in general, uh, in the immediate wake of October 7th, comparing uh, that time period to the same time period last year, uh, they had a they marked a 388% increase in anti-Semitic incidents. So yeah, you're 400%. And I can say that our numbers track with that. Um, in addition to my role within the Center for Combating Anti-Semitism, I also work within our legal department, as you well know. Um, and our legal department handles on an average annual basis. Uh, we're, we're handling anywhere from 250 to 300 requests for assistance. And again, that's over the course of a year. Uh, in the single month following October 7th, the number of requests that we had for legal assistance was almost double that. Wow. Um, the same is true for our campus department. <laughs> they a similar uh, uptick. And, and gosh, I, I can't even, <laughs> uptick is, doesn't even begin to cover it. But um, yes, I mean, it's, it's one of those situations that the way I've, I've kind of described it is by the time I finish reading an email, you know, that, that's saying, hey, here's a situation, you know, what can we do about this? I have at least 10 more that have come in, you know, and it's like, I'm still trying to process <laughs> the request that I just got. And so, uh, yeah, it's it's been intense is is an understatement in terms of just the volume, the sheer volume of, of issues. And again, what that speaks to, though, is is how these ideas, this the rhetoric and the narrative, it takes hold so quickly and it spreads so fast. And like you said, you know, the the individuals who truly hate Israel, right, and who are who are anti-Semitic uh, intentionally, right? Those are their thoughts, their beliefs. That's a minority. They're so they're so vocal, and their ideas take hold and take root so quickly, and they travel so quickly that you you know you end up with hundreds, if not thousands, of college students on an individual campus who are, like I said, marching and and rallying and and demonstrating and, and you know, it does feel overwhelming to these, you know, to the Jewish and Israeli students who are a minority, you know, in the world, but also on their campuses in almost every instance, uh, you know, and, and just feeling like, you know, my entire campus is against me. And I can imagine there are a lot of people that go along with the mob or go along with the crowd because they don't want themselves to be targeted. And so you just proliferate and escalate that the numbers that are um, you know, marching or protesting. Um, protesting is probably the wrong word, unfortunately. Um, you know, maybe if you can just give us a couple of some of the more egregious examples of incidents um, that you have seen, um, just to give our listeners an idea of um, what students are specifically facing. Yeah, um, I, we could be here all day, so I'll, I'll <laughs> use carefully. Um, and and I, I think what's important to understand is that while a lot of what we're seeing is peer to peer, you know, it's student to student. Um, it's not just the students who are involved in this kind of activity, but they're actually, you know, the Jewish and Israeli students are experiencing 
these anti-Semitic incidents from professors as well. And so I'll I'll give you one example of each and, and just, you know, understanding that these are simply, you know, one of thousands of incidents that are happening. Um, so uh, at MIT, a couple of weeks ago, uh, there was one of these sit-ins, I, I think is what they were calling it at the time, or walkouts, or, you know, it was one of these uh, pro-Palestinian planned events, demonstrations. Um, and, and it's also important to note, too, for, for especially your listeners who may not be as, as steeped in these issues and may not be aware of some of the various players involved, uh, there's one student organization in particular that's uh, the name of it is Students for Justice in Palestine, and SJP for short. Um, and that organization is largely responsible for a lot of the activity that goes on on college campuses when it comes to anti-Semitism and organized anti-Semitism and anti-Israel activity. Um, and they are very well organized. They have a national arm that that really, you know, kind of gives them messaging and and organizes how, how they go about their business. Um, and so. These are the kinds of groups that, that make it their mission on campuses, right, to foment the, the type of, of rhetoric and narrative that we've been talking about. And so one of these groups uh, at MIT staged one of these demonstrations and rallies, first of all, in an area in which they had no right to do this type of activity, right? There are certain spaces on campuses that maybe are, are generally understood, the quad, you know, open areas uh, to be uh, available for these types of larger free speech and expressive activity. Um, this particular area it was it was the main lobby of MIT um, that, according to media reports, it, it's this type of activity is just not generally permitted there. And they knew that the administration had had expressed that to them that it's not authorized to take place here. And yet they showed up first thing in the morning as planned and essentially took over this lobby. And, you know, imagine they've got signs and they're wearing kafiyas, um, which, you know, for for Jewish and Israeli students, uh, even just the, the visualizing and, and, and seeing that, uh, you know, they understand that that that's not a peaceful uh, piece of garb for, for most people to wear. Um, you know, and so they're wearing these things. They're wearing the Palestinian flag. They're chanting. Um, you know, they're making demands, say, of the university to divest uh, from any support that it may give to Israel. Uh, they're chanting for intifada, you know, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, all, all of these things. Um, about midway through the, the planned event, right, again, not authorized to take place here, but immediately, you know, the administration did nothing. But about midway through, several hours into it, uh, it had gotten out of control enough, uh, apparently, that the administration did say, all right, you know, enough is enough, but not before the administration had communicated to the Jewish students on campus that for their own safety and protection, they should stay away from that area, right? So now the administration has acknowledged, we're not capable of protecting you. You'll have to protect yourself by staying away from a place that you have every lawful right to be and they don't have the right to be here doing it, but we're not going to kick them out. We're not, you know, you stay away. Well, then I've said several hours into it, the administration decided that's enough. Um, so they tell the students that if they don't disperse, they'll be suspended. Well, that was sufficient for some of the students to leave. Um, some of the students stayed, though. Those students, un, you know, unlike what the administration had threatened, were not ultimately suspended from the university. Instead, they were put on non-academic suspension. And of course, that raises a lot of eyebrows. Well, what does that mean, right? Why, why that decision? 
It turns out that many of the students who remained and refused to comply with the order to disperse are in fact foreign nationals attending MIT pursuant to student visas. If they were put on academic suspension, would potentially and almost certainly be a violation of their student visa terms, and they could be subject to deportation. And and then you think, okay, so is is the administration, you know, worried about the deportation, you know, just trying to protect these students, you know, okay, maybe they've made a mistake and we don't want to go to the extreme. Um, According to media reports, that's actually not the primary issue. The primary issue is that these students, I don't know about these specific ones, right, but foreign students who are here on student visas make up about 30% of the tuition of MIT. Mm. And so rather than protect the rest of the campus community, as you are obligated to do, right, this administration chose to protect to the extreme those who were violating policy and breaking laws. Uh, and, and that's what you know students are experiencing on a regular basis. Uh, and, and I'll just give one more student example again, because that, that one is, is egregious when it comes to you know, the failure of administration. But there are other situations uh, where students themselves, and this was, the, for example, at Cornell, a student got on social media and encouraged other students at Cornell, if you see a Jewish student on campus, follow them home and slit their throat. Oh, my God. So, I mean, it, it runs the gamut, right, of, of you know, rhetoric that, that is scary and that is concerning and, you know, students being allowed to take over areas, you know, where they have no right to be all the way up to very serious and very real and dangerous threats against the lives of students. And so, um, that you know, that is what students are, are dealing with, like I said, peer to peer from their students. Uh, when it comes to professors, again, all manner of things from statements that clearly support Hamas, um, you know, that, that describe it in positive terms, uh, including the October 7th massacre, um, you know, things like that, which can you imagine walking into your classroom knowing that your professor feels that way? Uh, you know, I, I, I can't. Um, but then, again, the rhetoric is bad enough. Uh, When we cross the line, though, into actual discriminatory treatment, we're in a different world. Uh, There was a lecturer at Stanford who the week, I believe it was the week following October 7th. I don't I don't think it took longer than that. I think it was immediate aftermath. I don't recall the exact date, but um, came into class, had first year students in the class and asked the students in the class if any of them were Jewish or Israeli to identify themselves. Again, right? I'm knowing what just happened. Why are you asking me this, right? But a few of the students did identify themselves. They were then told by this lecturer to gather their belongings and go to the back of the class to make the ostensible point that this is what Israel does to the Palestinians. Oh my God. So, again, you know. Examples, uh, a sampling of of what's happening on campuses and and things like this are being reported to us multiple times a day. Um, it's it, 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 it is overwhelming. It's overwhelming in terms of the intake for us. You know, that's that's one thing, but that's what we're here to do. Right. And, and we will continue to meet that challenge. As you mentioned earlier, though, these students, they're just they're trying to go to class. They're trying to have a quote unquote normal college experience uh, and, and are being prohibited from doing that at every turn. Wow. 
So, you know, in terms of what Stand With Us does and what you do specifically, you guys do a great job of helping to intervene on behalf of students that are facing these incidents. What have you seen from the administrations in terms of responding to complaints that have been filed or your interventions? Have you, I know previously to things happening, we've seen a complete failure and moral breakdown in terms of how administrations have been handling um, these issues. But in response, at least to complaints that have been filed or your interventions, have you seen any positive outcomes? Um, what has been the response? I know it's hard to, you know, maybe generalize, but maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you're right. It, it, it's hard to generalize, but it's hard to generalize, generalize because, uh, again, there's a spectrum. Um, and it really uh, largely depends upon the individual or individuals with whom you're dealing. You know, and, and I think it, it has a lot to do with uh, their good faith. You know, do, do they want to do something and maybe just don't know what to do? Um, or do they absolutely think that they should be protecting, you know, all manner of, of this speech? And so um, I, I will say that, that we have seen uh, some positive and, and some less than positive responses from administrators. Uh, one of the things that, that we do regularly is we, we communicate in, in writing. We send letters to administrators uh, whether that be a customized letter of here's exactly what's happening on your campus and here's what you need to do, or a more general letter saying, here's the situation, here are some things that you can do proactively. And so, you know, we, we take both approaches. Uh, and we've seen some responses to, to both types of communication. Uh, even some of the general letters that we've sent, we've received responses from administrators uh, just generally saying, thank you for sending, you know, the letter. Um, we're aware of the situation and, you know, here's what we are doing uh, to try to ensure the safety of students. Uh, when it comes to the, the customized letters detailing the incidents perhaps that have occurred on that campus and, and that we're writing about, uh, it's, it's been a mixed bag. Um, as we, you know, we talked earlier and I know we'll talk a little bit more in a minute about Title VI, but, you know, when, when they don't respond as they ought to, then you know we we have legal tools in our in our pockets that we can use. Uh, some of some of the administrators are a little more uh, directly responsive. You know when we write and say, you know, here's a situation that we're bringing to your attention. You failed to address it appropriately. Here are the things that that we're asking you to do. Uh, we've had a handful of administrators respond to those things. Uh, when I say favorably, right now favorably for the most part is. We're, we are investigating this and we will keep you updated. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm struggling off the top of my head to think of any, uh, you know, that, that have just been an automatic, you know, you know, yes, we, we understand we've already addressed it. You know, we've, we've done these things. It's, it's a process of communicating. And like I said, we have had a handful of them that, that have come back and at least are, are communicating in a favorable way and, and recognizing the problem and attempting to take the necessary steps. Um, one of the things that I've found is in addition to, and, and sometimes even more so than writing letters, uh, I travel quite a bit. And so I have the opportunity, you know, when, when we can get access to sit down face-to-face -face with administrators and to talk through some of these issues. And, and, and I find that that in many cases is even more effective because it allows for some exchange. It allows for back and forth. You know, you can't ask questions of a letter uh, the same way that you can if I'm sitting right in front of you and we're having this conversation because so much of it depends upon not just an understanding of anti-Semitism, but you can't understand attacks against you know, the Jewish identity if you don't first understand 
the breadth and the scope of Jewish identity and having those conversations and helping administrators who, you know, may not understand these things to get a better understanding. Uh, I find that that opens eyes and, and doors and, and minds in ways, uh, you know, that, that may not be quite as accessible through writing a letter. So I would say, you know, we, we're, we're seeing uh, minimal, but some. Uh, positive responses. And then, like I said, when, when we don't get the responses that we think are appropriate and necessary, uh, then, you know, we're, we're ready for plan B and prepared to take legal action. Absolutely. And I think you actually mentioned something very important there, and that's understanding what anti-Semitism looks like in the context of Jewish identity. Um, because some things are obviously more obvious, um, and can very clearly be identified but there are a lot of other types of um, attacks or demonization or harassment that is not necessarily understood unless you understand uh, Jewish identity. And I think as a community within the Hindu American community, we, we deal with something similar in the sense of not understanding what Hindu identity looks like and what can be considered anti-Hindu or Hindu phobic in its uh, breadth um, and what that looks like in concrete examples. Yeah. And, and I have to say, um, it, it's frustrating at times because, uh, and I think perhaps the Hindu community experiences this as well, um, that the Jewish community is one of the few who are often not allowed to define their own identity. You know, when, when, when the Jewish community says, you know, look, here's what Zionism actually is, right? It's not a political position, but for most Jews, it's just a part of what it means to be Jewish. It's that connection to our ancestral homeland. And thus, when you demonize and delegitimize and apply double standards to Israel, you know, that that's an attack against Jewish identity, uh, no less so than, you know, if, if you told me that, you know, I, I can't wear my kippah, um, you know, or, uh, you know, something like that. And, there are many people who just don't understand that, right? And so when they're given that information and, and you can have the conversation, uh, get a little deeper into it, it it's eye-opening. But then there are others who will essentially turn around and say, no, that's not right. No, that's not anti-Semitism. And it's like, well, who are you to tell the Jewish <laughs> yeah. what Jewish identity is? And so again, I imagine that you probably see some of that in your community as well. Yeah, unfortunately, way too many parallels there. Um, and, you know, we have still not been able to uh, be have that agency to define ourselves, whether it's in academia or by the media or others that are constantly trying to define who we are and what constitutes, you know, anti-Hindu rhetoric or um, hate. Um, so absolutely, I think we definitely empathize um, with what the Jewish community is going through right there. Um, you know, coming back to Title VI, uh, I think as you mentioned, this is kind of one of those tools that is at your disposal. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, where incidents um, on campus have risen to the level where you have had to take action in terms of filing a complaint uh, with the Department of Education based on Title VI protections? Yeah. So, so generally what we're looking for there are, you know, uh, we talked earlier about the line between speech and conduct and you know, even if it's pure speech, has it crossed the line and become harassment? Um, you know, is it a threat? Things like that. Um, you know, so we we actually before October seventh had filed and and were participating in investigations of Title VI complaints on three different campuses, um, and they they're all ongoing. A couple of them have been going on far longer than we would have liked. Uh, but I, I will say that I I am again cautiously optimistic. I think that the Department of Education 
understands in the wake of October 7th what is happening. They understand the severity of the situation. Um, and the reason I say that is because, like I said, our, our complaints uh, lingered longer than, than I think they should have, uh, and, and we would like to see them move faster. But I can tell you that, that the activity in those matters uh, has, has increased since October 7th. Um, they appear to be investigating with a vigor that was lacking before. Uh, and I've also seen, you know, we, we've seen over a dozen, I, I think at this point, investigations opened as to complaints that were filed after October 7th, right? So very quickly, uh, not just receiving the complaints, you know, OCR, but, but then uh, doing their initial analysis and then formally opening full investigations. And so I, I you know, I see that that, that activity uh, is happening, and, and it appears that they you know, they understand what's happening. So I, I'll, I'll give you the example of um, you know again, I not to rank in, in terms of you know which form of discrimination was the worst, uh, but just most recently, uh, the most recent Title VI complaint that we filed was at the very beginning of this year, and that was at uh, George Washington University. And so the the conducted issue there uh, was there were multiple incidents. A lot of it had to do with rhetoric. Um, but it, but uh, again, a lot of times, you know, we see the rhetoric and say, you know, that's still probably going to be protected speech, even if it's anti-Semitic. Um, you know, the, the question is, has it created this pervasively hostile environment? And so for us and, and for the students you know, in, in this one particular course at GW, uh, the answer to that was yes. And it was it was a series of things. Uh, right. This this professor came in the very first day of the class. Uh, which again was a class about diversity, and so you know these uh, potential and, and aspiring psychologists are supposed to be talking about their own identity, exploring that in an effort uh, to be more empathetic, you know, in practice, things like that, to, to gain these skills. The very first day of class, when the professor asks everyone to introduce themselves and share a little bit, and you know everyone's sharing about themselves and. You know, professors validating you know, everything that's being said. And then a student introduces herself and in discussing who she is a little bit, says that she was born in Israel and unprovoked. You know, it wasn't said as a source of shame. Um, it was actually, you know, just a matter of fact and, and even prideful. Uh, the professor's immediate response was, it's not your fault that you were born in Israel. Wow. So that was kind of red flag number one for these students. I mean, they they knew going into the class, they generally know who their professors are and have heard things. Uh, but but it was like okay, um, so that happened. Uh, and then from there, there was a guest lecturer who was invited in. Um, the topic that ended up being discussed wasn't uh, at all what they were expecting. Uh, it ended up just being a diatribe against Israel, um, and and in the sense of nothing that Israel does should ever be credited as, as having positive motivation, um, that even their, their uh, attempts to provide, say, humanitarian aid, uh, that's really all uh, subterfuge. You know, it, it, it's all an attempt to gain psychological power. Um, you know, there's nefarious purposes there. Um, a lot of times, and, and I think this is an important point that a lot, a lot of people may be interested to know, prior to October 7th, a lot of this type of rhetoric was couched in the term Zionism. Mm -hmm. and, and people felt comfortable. They had that cover, right? And I'm not, oh, I'm not talking about Jews, right? I'm, I'm talking about Zionists. You know, and this is my political view. Uh, again, 
clear misunderstanding of what the term Zionism really means, but be that as it may, in that particular lecture, uh, and, and even more prevalent since October 7th, we have seen slippages, and, and like I said, since October 7th, it's not even slippages, um, where the term Zionist typically would be used to provide that cover, it's just the term Jews. Um, and so that happened several times in that guest lecture uh, where, you know, we're talking about Israeli uh, motivations. And then every now and then, instead of saying Israelis or Zionists, the word Jew was used. Uh, the reading material in that course, um, every time that the Jewish identity was being described uh, or referenced, it was in a negative you know, connotation. But every other identity, every other thing that, that you know, students shared about their various identities um, you know, it was celebrated or validated um, when they talked, when other students talked about their own experiences with attacks against their identity, all validated. When the student, the Jewish students in this class finally said, OK, we need to address this. Um, they were then told by this professor uh, that what they were experiencing was not anti-Semitism, as we talked about earlier, right, defining their identity and attacks against them for them. Um, that, in fact, uh, they were being Islamophobic in expressing their concerns about anti-Semitism. Um, again, nothing positive coming from this. When they finally went to the administration, seeing that they were getting nowhere with the professor, they first thought that the administrators uh, that they spoke with were going to be helpful and, and to put in place some helpful measures. Uh, they then found out that, no, in fact, we're not going to do any of these things. You can either finish the course as is, or you can withdraw and take it incomplete. Only problem there is, this is the only professor who teaches this class. It's mandatory and you have to take three semesters. Wow. Um, so no fix there. And then the last piece of it, uh, like I said, all of this you know, is happening and, and building and building. Um, and then some of the most vocal of those Jewish students you know, who had tried to multiple times express the concerns about anti-Semitism and have a conversation. Um, the professor ended up initiating disciplinary proceedings oh. against uh, as a result of that. And so. Uh, at that point, it was very clear that, OK, we're no longer just talking about trying to educate and, and yeah. change narrative. This is discriminatory treatment. So, um, yeah, th these are the kinds of things that, that are happening on a regular basis. And like I said, that you know, for us, uh, certainly cross the line and, and create that pervasively hostile anti-Semitic environment. Wow. Um, you know, as you were talking through that again, you know, I always try to you know, think through how is that applied to the Hindu American community and the, you know, the use of Zionism as a cover to demonize the Jewish community. Similarly, we see something like that with, you know, attempts to attack Hindutva, which means Hinduness and kind of just more talks about the sacred geography of India as being kind of, uh, you know, for all people that are of the soil, there are nothing to do with, you know, being exclusionary or anything else, but has been used as cover to attack Hindus and Hinduism. So, you know, I just, as you're talking, I, I see these parallels and I know there's a lot of concern and fear that, you know, just takes one thing to happen in India uh, and a te terrorist attack or something else. And, you know, very quickly we could find ourselves in a similar situation, uh, our community on college campuses here in America. So, you know, definitely I think you, you see a natural support for the Jewish community coming from Hindu Americans, because I think we feel um, that there are similarities and experiences, but also I think that playbook that is used um, against the Jewish community is very similar to what we see against um, the Hindu American community as well. Um, and so that's, I think, very concerning and uh, something that um, 
you know, we're definitely preparing for in a sense uh, going forward. I just want to quickly add a little context um, in terms of what you're mentioning about the Title VI claims. Um, you know, for the OCR Office of Civil Rights within the Department of Education to actually open an investigation is a big thing. Um, so some of our listeners may not know that oftentimes these claims just sit there on their desk for months on end um, without even knowing if they're going to open a, um, an investigation. Or sometimes they can quickly get a response that we're not going to even open an investigation. Then once the investigation is actually open, then they would look into it before you could actually find if there are any remedial measures or any action that's going to be taken. So it's a quite a big process. And the fact that at least these are now investigations are being opened, I think is significant. So I just wanted to provide that context for our listeners as well. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. Um, and that, like I said, that's why I'm, I've been so encouraged, uh, you know, that, that this is something that OCR is taking very seriously right now, because, um, again, just, just to add a little more detail there, uh, the I can imagine if I were listening to this, I might have this question. Well, well what does it even take for them to open the investigation? Right. And so um, for, for anyone who has a, a legal background, you know, you might be familiar with, uh, you know, a motion to dismiss type standard. And it's, it's essentially you know, what they ask is, OK, we, we've read this complaint. If everything that's alleged here were in fact true and did happen, would that be a violation of Title VI? Right. If the answer to that is yes, they'll open a full investigation that, you know, they'll start working on gathering documents and interviewing the, the necessary people at the institution, as well as if there are students involved, professors, you know, whomever. So that's the full investigation. If the answer to that first threshold question is, look, even if everything you said here were true, it wouldn't be a violation of Title VI, then they close that investigation. And, and you know, that, that's the end of that. You know, you go back and uh, try to figure out, OK, what, what's next for us here? Um, but but making that decision, as you said, Samir, one way or the other, yes or no, are we even going to open the investigation can take months and months and months, as you said, because, the, you know, those there's they are extremely understaffed. And, you know, we, we understand that. Uh, and, and what that means is that those case files, those complaints end up just languishing there. And, and I think they, I think they generally have a triage system. I don't know, you know, uh, exactly and, and officially what it is. I, I, I have been given the impression uh, that if there is an ongoing situation, as opposed to, for example, there are some things that happened on this campus and created this environment, but those things are over and done, right? That's more likely to sit and and you're going to wait for that one, as opposed to, for example, uh, you know, students have been subjected to a disciplinary process and it's ongoing right now. You know, they're in the midst of it. I, I think they tend to see that as, OK, you know, this this merits, uh, you know, our, our expediency here and, and we expedite the, the handling of that case. And so um, it's, it's a factor. Um, it's an important factor in terms of when we uh, get ready to submit a complaint to OCR. You know, can, can we demonstrate not just you know, past events that happened that have led to the creation of this environment. But can we demonstrate that there are some things that are ongoing? Um, one of the things that right now, I think actually kind of makes it easy for us to make that case that, that you know, it's ongoing is, I mentioned earlier, this organization, SJP, Students for Justice in Palestine. Um, some campuses, based on the, the, the recent activities of that organization on, you know, some administrations based on, on the activity on their campus, have actually suspended uh, their SJP chapters. Uh, a couple of them have disbanded them entirely and, and said, you know, they're not allowed to operate on this campus anymore. Uh, but there are still many more campuses where that organization continues to operate and on an ongoing and I mean, really on a weekly basis, at least 
they're holding these events. Um, they're doing these rallies, these demonstrations, walkouts of class, you know, things like that. And so that actually is a demonstrable ongoing issue that is that is continuing to not just create, but exacerbate a hostile environment. And so, again, I, you know, I, I give OCR what credit I can that I think they're, they understand that they're seeing it for themselves at this point. Absolutely. Um, you know, before we kind of, you know, wrap up um, in a few minutes, one additional question I wanted to ask is, you know, if I were to look at the Hindu American community, we have several organizations or individuals that, you know, under the umbrella of Hindu groups, or they call themselves Hindu groups, oftentimes are their most uh, vocal, um, you know, individuals or groups that are demonizing Hindus themselves. Um, obviously, in the Jewish community, we see something similar with groups at the national level. Like I believe it's uh, Jewish Voices for Peace is one of the names of the organizations. At this campus level, um, what involvement do some of these types of groups that are uh, ostensibly from the Jewish community, what role do they have in some of the anti-Semitic incidents you're seeing on campus? And how does that complicate the issues when you're trying to, you know, show that this is in fact anti-Semitism? Yeah, uh, great question. Uh, so yeah, Jewish Voice for Peace uh, is is both national and and similar to SJP has uh, campus chapters. So they are one of the the primary players. Uh, there's there's other groups, uh, if not now, um, you know, some other groups like that that are, are lesser um, in, in terms of intensity, I guess. But, but JVP is certainly one of those. And like I said, when, when you have a name like Jewish Voice for Peace, first of all, wow, that sounds great. Who doesn't want that? And, no. and they, you know, assert themselves to be Jewish. The reality is um, you don't have to be Jewish to be a member of, of JVP, uh, but many of them are. Um, and, and as difficult as it is to say, the other reality is you can be Jewish and be anti-Semitic. Um, it, it's, it's a reality and it, and it happens. Um, and, and the reason I say that is, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, it kind of begs the question of, well, what is it? How can you, how could you be Jewish and, and also exhibit Jew hatred, right? Well, for many of, of this, the Jews that we're talking about, you know, who are part of JVP and, and these types of organizations, uh, they don't consider themselves Zionists, right? They they do not uh, care, frankly. I think whether uh, Israel exists as the Jewish state. In fact, to the extent that they care, they think that it is a an oppressive colonialist apartheid regime. You know, they they further all of these uh, inaccurate narratives and all of this misinformation, um, and and they do it in the name of a Jewish organization, right? Um, but but. What, what people, I think, need to understand is just because for some Jews, a, a very small minority of people who are, in fact, Jewish, just because Zionism isn't a part of their identity as Jews, it does not change the fact that for the vast majority of Jews worldwide, Zionism is a part of Jewish identity. And thus, when you engage in anti-Zionism, right, you are acting in, in an, a manner that is opposed to, that is attacking that aspect of their Jewish identity. And, and the way I kind of have likened it to other things is um, within the Christian community, right? Not every Christian, whether it be individual or group, you know, church, denomination, organization, um, demonstrates their Christianity in the same way, right? And, and what for one individual or group that says, hey, I'm Christian, uh, might be offensive and, and an identity-based attack, it may not be you know, for another. 
who also says, you know, I'm Christian. Again, the, the whole idea being that Jews, like any other group, they're not a monolith, yeah. right? And so uh, you don't get to just say, well, this group, especially this small minority group of Jews, gets to speak for the, the entirety of the Jewish community. Um, if you're going to be, you know, taking your cues from and, and uh, listening to anyone who is Jewish about what Jewish identity means, I mean, it, it really should be talk to the individual who, you know, who's saying this is my identity, but certainly there should be uh, quite a bit of credence given to what the majority of the Jewish community says. And so, uh, again, it, it, does it complicate things? Yes. This is where I go back to, but when we can have these conversations, when we can provide, you know, this further explanation uh, and, and have a little bit of discussion, generally people uh, kind of go, oh, okay, yeah, I, I, I can see that. You know, again, these are talking about people who, uh, you know, have are, are of good faith and, uh, you know, want to engage in, in the conversation in a meaningful and productive way. Uh, but again, it, it certainly does complicate things when you have Jewish individuals and groups running around um, attacking yeah. the Jewish state. There's no question that it, it, it's, it's problematic. Um, and then you have others from outside the Jewish community, uh, you know, who, who are anti-Zionist, anti-Israel, you know, things like that, who then tokenize those Jews, right? And say, of course, I'm not anti-Semitic. You know, I associate with and, and work very closely with this Jewish organization. And you've got Jews who are saying this and, uh, you know, but, but it, the reality is those things are easily debunked. Um, it, it just takes someone who's, who's actually willing to be a little bit intellectually honest about the issue. Absolutely. Um, you know, as we uh, kind of conclude here is what would you like to see happening at maybe a policy level or a, a broader level at university campuses? What are a couple of concrete things or reforms that you would um, like to see that would be helpful? Um, obviously, it's not going to prevent all the individual incidents or cases from happening, but at least I think it would be a step in the right direction. Uh, I, I think starting with, and, and this is something I know you were familiar with because we talked about it before, uh, Adoption and use of the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, or IRA, definition of anti-Semitism. Um, it's it's the international consensus definition that that the majority of Jewish organizations in the Jewish community support, uh, and it's it's just it's, it's so immensely helpful in addressing. And when I say addressing, what I mean is understanding and identifying manifestations of anti-Semitism. Um, it, it's not always an easy thing, as, as you alluded to earlier. There are some things that are more obvious when it comes to anti-Semitism. There are other things that, that are a little more nuanced, uh, and they they may provide, you know, some context or require rather some contextual uh, analysis to determine, okay, is this anti-Semitic or is it not? Uh, and, and the IRA definition is immensely helpful there. And so while we've seen uh, 1,100 plus, I think now, entities worldwide adopt this definition, including quite a few uh, student government bodies on campuses, when it comes to the administrative level, it, it, that's really lacking uh, there. there. Again, there's a handful of administrations who have recognized the importance of that definition for helping to understand and identify anti-Semitism. But I, I think it, it's incredibly important, particularly in the DEI space. Um, I think it should be implemented into DEI policies. It, again, in terms of this is the definition that we will use when confronted with allegations of anti-Semitism to help us to determine whether, in fact, that's that's what we're dealing with. Um, one of the reasons that I think it's actually a no-brainer for uh, administrations on the campus level 
It's the definition that OCR, we've talked about, you know, the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights, when they're investigating Title VI complaints alleging anti-Semitic discrimination, this is the definition that they use. So to me, it seems a no-brainer that administrations would say, well, we, we should use that too, because if, if we get it wrong here and then OCR has to intervene, that's the standard they're going to be using. So again, that would be you know, number one, I, I think, would be uh, adopting and utilizing uh, that definition, getting some education about it too. I mean, it, again, it requires some understanding. Um, and, and again, I think if they would begin to utilize that, it's it's not, like you said, it's not going to stop anti-Semitism happening, but it is going to help people to understand it and identify it more readily. Um, and then the other thing is, I, I think that uh, the administrations really need to take a look at their policies as it pertains to protected speech. Um, the, we one of the letters I mentioned earlier. We, you know, we write both customized and then more generalized letters. One of the more generalized letters that we sent it was to general counsels uh, at thousands of universities across the country, um, and just giving them a little bit of information and asking them then, right, to to do their own research to determine what types of restrictions, you know, can you permissibly implement here, time, place, manner, um, also. Understanding some of the rhetoric, right, as as being truly genocidal and thus a true threat in some circumstances. Uh, but I, I I think that they've gone so far, as we talked about earlier, in in terms of wanting to protect speech um, that that they've missed the boat when it comes to the areas where that speech either isn't protected or can be lawfully restricted in some ways. And so I, I think. Um, that needs to be revisited, uh, and then it needs to be communicated clearly to the campus community. Right? What what's off limits? Uh, you know, what's permissible, and and when and where. And uh, again, I, I just think tightening the reins a little bit in terms of what is being allowed uh, to just run rampant on campuses. I think those are two of the, the biggest uh, issues. Really, there's understanding and identifying anti-Semitism, and then dealing with the with the speech side of things. Absolutely. No, I think those are really important steps. Um, we hope universities will move on that, um, you know, without wasting any more time, um, because uh, it's definitely a concerning situation to see what's happening on campuses. But we definitely empathize with the Jewish community right now in um, what they're going through. Um, Harley, just as we kind of close the program, any final thoughts for our listeners? Anything you want to leave with us? Maybe something positive on a positive note? We can uh, we can end our discussion today. Yeah, you know, one of the things that that I um, in, encourage people that I'm speaking to on a regular basis, and, and I guess uh, it, it's important to note here that uh, I myself am not Jewish. Uh, and so I, I find myself, though, regularly having the opportunity to really encourage the Jewish community to, to continue to be proud of who they are, to, to be proud of their Jewish identity, to not hide that. Um, I happen to, to believe uh, at a very deep level of the world needs what the Jewish people have to offer. Um, and, and I believe the same is true, uh, you know, for, for each of, of the identity groups, you know, and, and I think it's true of the Hindu community. Uh, there's so much that the diversity of our world, uh, you know, offers. And, and so I, I think that what I would leave everyone here with is, is just that encouragement to be yourself, to be authentically you, um, and, and to please, 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 you know, when, when you see, anyone, whether it's someone from within your own identity or someone from outside your identity being attacked uh, because of their identity, please be willing to be one of those people uh, who's an upstander, 
right? Who, who recognizes that this is not right, that this should not be, uh, and stands with those who are being targeted. Um, you know, the name of our organization is Stand With Us uh, for a reason. Um, and, and like I said, I, I, I just think that it's immensely important. I'm so grateful for the close partnership that you mentioned earlier between Stand With Us and the Hindu American Foundation. I you know, look forward to seeing it continue to grow. And I hope that the, the listeners of this program will see that, will be inspired, be encouraged by that and, and continue to grow that relationship, that friendship. Um, I think it's crucially important. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please take a minute and leave us a nice five-star review. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at hinduamerican.org slash donate. Thanks again for listening.